You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. All right, and there it is. Welcome everybody online and in the room if you're a guest. My name is Morgan. I'm the lead pastor here at Mosaic. Uh, We're in a series called Return to Me. As you can see, we're looking at the heart of God through a group of writers called the Minor Prophets, or as someone said to me this week, uh, to use a music metaphor. These guys are sort of like God's deep cuts. <laughs> deep cuts. So today we are listening to someone named Amos. Your scripture reading is from his album. Thank you very much. Tracks eight and nine. You're welcome. Scripture reading is going to be in front of you and hang on, by the way. Here we go. Hear this, you who trample the needy, And do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? Skimping on the measure, boosting the price, cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. The Lord has swore by himself the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. Chapter 9, in that day I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They'll plant vineyards and drink their wine. They'll make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. That's the reading of God's word, all his people said. Amen. Amen. Yeah, today is sort of part two of looking at something that Pastor Rosalind did a great job of beginning to look at last week. It's something the minor prophets talk a lot about. It's something called justice. Justice. And we're talking about this word, this idea, this concept for two main reasons. Number one, uh, let me put it like this. I was at a ministry conference last week and I was asked to get up and share something and speak at one point. And when I was introduced and my slide went up on the screen, a picture you know, of me on the screen, I just asked to be introduced as the lead pastor at Mosaic Church. Yay. Like I do pretty much when I go anywhere. Why do I use that title? Well, it's because it's something that's close to my heart. You all, us, this church is close to my heart. And so I'm most often introduced like that. Now, if let's say God were being introduced to a crowd with a slide and a title, what do you think his title might be? Well, in one sense, he's answered that for us already. Because more than 200 times in the Bible, the God of the Bible uses one word to describe who he is. Over and over again, he says, I am the God of mishpat. That's the Hebrew word for justice. Over and over again, the God of the Bible says, I am a God of justice. In other words, there are many things. There are many things that the God of the Bible cares about, many things that he does, yes, and says besides this for sure, yes, he's the God of hesed. He's the God of covenant and mercy and grace and love. He's the God of Yeshua, of salvation, healing, deliverance. Oh, but along with those things, he cares a lot about this. 
So that's number one. Number two, we're also looking at this in depth because over the last couple of years in particular, this word and conversation has gotten real hot, hadn't it? It has. It's been a big deal. And so whenever something cultural intersects something biblical, it seems right to at least to try to get it right. And again, for sure, this has been a tribalized, polarized conversation because on one side, you've got people who say that any mention of, any conversation about justice is, to use some words, Marxist, statist, liberal or woke or left wing. Oh, but how can talking about something the Bible talks about hundreds of times be left wing? On the other side, you've got people who want to define justice as being anything and everything they want it to be, and they can drag the Bible into some really bad spaces to justify a non-Christian cultural agenda. So how can doing injustice to the idea of justice, how can redefining something precious to the heart and name of God, how can that be just? It's not. It can't. So why are we looking at this? Because number one, God talks about it a lot. And number two, we get confused about it a lot. So number three, let's at least try to do better today. Are you with me so far? Okay, very good. Three people. (laughs) One of which is on our staff. By the way, I'm married to. So very good. All right. (laughs) We'll try to get you there. Okay. Let's look at what the book of Amos shows us about something near and dear to the heart of God. Four things from this passage. Number one, why justice matters. Number two, what justice looks like. Number three, what justice reveals. It shows something. And finally, what justice will bring. It will bring something someday. Number one, let's begin and just try to see why justice matters. And to get there, let's ask two questions of the passage of the text first. First question, what's Amos talking about? All right. Well, in Amos' day, roughly 750 BC, two big world powers, Assyria and Egypt, were temporarily weakened. That enabled Israel to temporarily gain control of some trade routes along its borders. And as a result, this enormous amount of wealth began to flow into Israel. Overall, it was an extraordinarily prosperous time in their history. Unfortunately, most of it went to the professional classes. Hardly any of it helped the lower classes. And this only served to widen the gap between rich and poor. And so Amos is looking at all of that, all of this, and saying there's a lack of mishpat present. And he names a specific unjust practice here in chapter 8, verse 6, which was widening the gap. And he says, here is what a lack of justice of mishpat looks like. He says, working class, excuse me, merchant class, you're skimping on the measure, boosting the price, cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. So he's saying here, he's pointing out that in that day, the merchants, those with money, were raising the prices on ordinary goods so much that more and more people were falling into debt. He says the poor. It's like they can be bought for, for silver right now. Silver was worth less than gold. He's saying it doesn't take that much right now for people to fall into debt. It's like people are falling into debt at the drop of a hat, or to use his phrase, at the drop of a pair of sandals. And that was particularly bad in that day because if you fell into debt, you became a slave until you worked it off. So first, that's what he's talking about. The second question, why is he talking about it? Well, the reason he's talking about it is because as a Hebrew prophet, he had a specific job. His job, the Hebrew prophet's job, was to watch over the covenant that Israel had made with God. 
centuries before this, back at Mount Sinai with Moses and the Ten Commandments and Charlton Heston and all the special effects and all that. After God had rescued Israel from poverty and slavery in Egypt, the nation, the people of Israel, had sworn to love God most, follow his laws alone, so as to show the other nations around them who this God of liberation and love was. See, prophets were covenant watchers. They were sort of like these ancient referees who were supposed to blow their whistle whenever Israel committed a moral foul when they turned away from God's laws for them. And part of what Israel was turning away from here in Amos were the laws which were given and designed by God to structure the nation of Israel in such a way so as to minimize poverty. For example, there were things like the Sabbath year where every seven years all debts were wiped out. Now, if you've got multiple kids in college, right about now you're thinking, that sounds like a really good idea. Okay, There was the Jubilee year where land had fallen in the hands of creditors. If that happened, every 50 years, land would revert to its original owner. And there were the gleaning laws, which created margin for the poor. You see this, of course, in the book of Ruth, when Ruth goes out into the field to glean what the poor were legally allowed. And Amos actually specifically calls out the neglect of that practice here. He says, even the sweepings, which were guaranteed by God's law for the poor, even those are being sold. He said, you've become so unjust that you're even selling to the poor what's guaranteed to them by God for free. You're not supposed to sell the sweepings with the wheat. And Amos is saying all of this reveals here a lack of mishpat, a lack of justice, and God is not okay with it. So why does justice matter? I hope you'll see, it's because justice simply matters to God. Justice simply matters to God. Now, before I move on, let me ask you this. A couple questions. Do you understand, or maybe it's, do you, is it beginning to dawn on you, that something like this lies at the heart of biblical faith? This is at the heart, hear me, of whatever you've rejected or you've accepted. If you've rejected God, faith, Bible, church, all that, then you've rejected the real source of mishpat, of justice. And if you've accepted it, you've accepted God, faith, Bible, church, do you know what you've gotten yourself into? Do you, know, do you see that what kind of a God you've fallen in love with God is saying? And being in a covenant relationship with him is just loving what he loves, and he loves mishpat. See, justice matters, number one, because justice matters to God. So what does it look like? All right, number two, what does it look like? What is it? How does it show up? Let's try to see. Let's start give you this illustration. Uh, there's a movie many of us watch every year that reveals what Mishpat looks like. Every Christmas, Christmas tide, to use the British phrase, what movie do most of you rewatch? Okay, it's all, votes coming in from all over. Our collars or phone banks are lighting up. I mean, besides Elf, besides Elf, you watch Elf. If I could work that one into a message, I, that would, I would like, just would win everything. Yep. There you go. Someone said, it's a classic. It's a wonderful life. You're a winner, sir. Yes. It's a wonderful life. Now, in the movie, Jimmy Stewart, of course, plays George Bailey in all of his life. George Bailey has been an advocate for the poor in his hometown of Bedford Falls. Even to his own hurt, uh, you watch and see time after time, he, he puts his reputation on the line. He gives his own resources for others, but something terrible happens to George Bailey. Now, I won't ruin it for you and tell you what it was, even though the movie's been out for like 80 years. It's so old, it's been in, it's black and white. 
And they show it like 17 times a day leading up to Christmas. So anyway, but as a result of this terrible thing, which will not be named, George Bailey wishes that he had never been born and he's about to take his own life. It's terrible. And in comes who to save him? Come on. Yes, Clarence the angel who shows him what the world would look like and be like if he had never been born. Which basically, if you'll notice, is the whole plot of Back to the Future. Back to the Future basically ripped off the plot from It's a Wonderful Life. It's just got a flux capacitor and a sweet time traveling DeLorean. Thank you very much, but I digress. What does George Bailey see in the world into which he's never been born? He sees not Bedford Falls, but another town altogether. He sees Bedford Falls has become Potterville. Named after the money-hungry banker who only cares about the bottom line, squeezing every last dollar out of life and limb and his tenants, the old man Potter sells the sweepings with the wheat, so to speak. What made the difference between Bedford Falls and Potterville? It's one man, one life, doing mishpat, right? Bedford Falls looks like justice. Potterville looks like injustice. Through the lens then now, thank you very much, of Amos and George Bailey, let me outline, try to give you four things real quick, quick as I can, four things that justice looks like. All right, here we go. Justice looks like then equal treatment for all. Now, not equal outcome, Bible doesn't guarantee that, but equal treatment. And this is, of course, is an Old and New Testament idea. For example, the old law from Moses, I would say the old Mosaic law, but that could get real weird and confusing. Okay, thank you. Church jokes, sorry. The law from Moses said this back in Leviticus 24. You are to have the same law for the foreigner and the native born. This thing, laws can't be made to favor ethnicity or the wealthy. This, of course, was in contrast to the surrounding nations. Flash forward to the New Testament. The book of James says this. Don't treat people differently on the basis of wealth. If you do, it's like you're saying you you don't even know who God is. God doesn't love the wealthy more than the poor, so why would you? I mean, Proverbs even says rich and poor have this alike in common, the imago Dei, the image of God. Number two, justice looks like radical generosity. Generosity. Okay, now on one hand, we know the Bible is pretty clear about private property. Remember the eighth commandment? Thou shalt not steal. It affirms private property. The people can't take what's yours. The state can't take what's yours. On the other hand, God says this, no matter how private you think your property is, he says it's actually all his. (laughs) The whole earth, Psalm 24 says, is God's private property. (laughs) He owns everything in it. He owns it all, which is why God can look at humans throughout the scriptures and say, because it all belongs to me, I tell you to pour your resources into the human community, to care for the poor, to do charitable works. Pour your resources also into your local community of faith, in our case is the church. And if you don't do that, if you aren't generous, this is saying, it isn't just being stingy, it's being unjust. Justice looks like third, advocacy for those without power. Now, back in Bedford Falls, you see old George Bailey doing this over and over. He comes and he fights off old man Potter over and over again so people can own homes. Why does he do this? Here's why. It's because, if you'll notice, the the Bible never says, hey, speak up for the rich and powerful. Why? The rich and powerful don't tend to need someone to do this. They can hire a lawyer or a team of lawyers, right? 
You know this. The Bible does say, Proverbs 31, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Third, excuse me, fourth, justice looks like, and this is a tricky one, hang in there, individual and corporate responsibility. Let's try to unpack this. Sometimes we see God holds groups of people responsible for the sins of others. Not popular, but he does it. Look at Joshua 7. Achan's whole family pays the price for one person's sin. Daniel, Job, Nehemiah, they all repent on behalf of their nation, on behalf of their families, or sometimes both. And here in Amos, you can read it, chapters one and two, God holds the present citizens of the nations around Israel as culpable for the sins of their ancestors. And then go ahead into the New Testament, Acts chapter two, Peter looks at it, all the people in Jerusalem, and he says this, all of you are guilty for crucifying Jesus. You all killed him. Did all of them actually kill him? No. Then what's he after? Implication is you all are guilty because you were silent. An innocent man was killed and no one said a word. I could go on. On the other hand, yes, the Bible puts the greatest weight on individual responsibility. For example, Deuteronomy 24, Ezekiel 18, they warn against blaming an individual in the present too much for what their ancestors did in the past. In Matthew 25, parable of the talents, God judges people individually for their ability or inability to create increase with what he gave them individually. And ultimately, of course, our standing before God is in how we respond to him personally as an individual. Morgan, what are you saying? Is justice a corporate or individual thing? Yes. <laughs> yes, here's what it means. It means the Bible's social analysis is complex. It doesn't fit into a nice, neat liberal box. Nice, neat conservative box. No scientific theory alone can account for the state of the world and its moral complexity now. Still at this point, you may be saying, Morgan, super mad. This still sounds like a mostly liberal political agenda, but I want to tell you it's not. Because if the message today were what on the Bible says about gender, the family, marriage, sexuality, and it has been and it will be, I'm sure, that would sound like a politically conservative agenda. But it wouldn't be. What would you call it? You call it Bible, right? So if the Bible really is the word of God, wouldn't it make sense that it didn't fit in any one 21st century fleeting political conservative liberal box? You have to shake off political parties when it comes to how you approach the Bible, hear me, on any subject. And I'd like to think, now that we're here, that Christians would rather, we would rather take our cues about things like justice, the body, sexuality, more from Amos and Micah and Isaiah and Peter, Paul and Jesus than a politician, a celebrity, or a podcast host. <laughs> yes. Number one, that's why justice matters. Number two, that's what it looks like. Let's keep going. Number three, what does justice reveal? Because it actually reveals something. Because when Amos says this, hear this, you who trample the needy, you do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over? We must sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat. When he asked this, he's showing that the absence or the presence of mishpat in a faith community reveals something. He's speaking, catch this, to people who are sitting in worship on the Sabbath and they're saying, I can't wait to get back to making money. 
Now on one hand, again, the Bible never condemns the making of money. Over and over again, please hear me, it affirms prosperity. No one should ever feel guilty for prospering. The Apostle John says, I pray that you all would prosper. Uh, Having nice things, a nice car, a nice house, don't feel guilty. People like Abraham, Job, and David, Old Testament, New Testament, Joseph of Arimathea, all fabulously wealthy, loved by God, used by God. Wealth is a good thing. The problem is when wealth becomes your best thing, your highest thing, and that's what Amos is getting after here. People sitting in worship on the Sabbath, in their case, in the presence of God, their bodies are there, but their hearts aren't. Their hearts are wrapped up not in what God says is closest to his heart, but something that's closest to their heart. And this is where it gets really tough. Hang in there just for a minute, okay? Because this is why formal religion, organized whatever, without care for the poor, is something that, which to use God's own words here, he hates, hates. We're gonna get in and out real fast. Okay, look at Amos 5. God says this, speaking to Israel, not to us, He says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Tell us how you really feel, God, you know. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. You bring choice fellowship offerings, I don't have regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. 1 Corinthians 13 coming to mind here. But let justice, now by the way, God's not quoting Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. Martin Luther King's quoting Amos, but let justice roll on like a river, righteous like a never failing stream. See, Amos is saying here, the mark of those who know God, one of the key marks, isn't just attendance at a worship service, it's a deeply sensitive social conscience, all right? And you can go all the way to the back half of Matthew 25, where Christians hardly ever dare to go, where Jesus Christ says that one day all people are going to stand before him. He's saying, I'm going to judge all humanity. That's kind of offensive right there, okay? He says that all peoples will be looking for a verdict on their lives. They'll stand before him. He says they'll either be accepted or condemned when he looks at whether or not they clothed the poor, they fed the hungry, they cared for the sick, and those in prison. Not that doing those things in and of themselves can ever save you. They can't. God never says that. But those things it's just saying are a sign that reveal whether a person really knows or doesn't know this God, whether a person knows they've been saved by sheer grace or not. Because if you believe that you are saved, not by works, but by sheer grace alone, that means that you know that you were spiritually naked. You were spiritually starving, spiritually thirsty and in prison and dying with no way forward. And someone had to come rescue you. And if you know and believe that about yourself, you're going to treat those with nothing like God treated you when you had nothing to stand on before him. You will pour yourself out for others because you know that on the cross, Jesus Christ poured himself out for you. You'll remember that it cost Christ his wealth to cover your poverty and you won't look at those without and condemn because what if Jesus had done that to you? So by the name of Jonathan Edwards, great theologian, had a sermon called Christian Charity. Here's what he said. Consider how much God hath done for us. Christ loved and pitied us when we were poor 
and he laid out himself to help and even did shed his own blood for us without grudging. He did not think much to deny himself, to make us rich and to clothe us with kingly robes when we were naked, to feast us at his own table with dainties infinitely costly when we were starving, to advance us from the dunghill and set us among princes and make us inherit the throne of his glory and so to give us the enjoyment of the greatest wealth and plenty to all eternity." Considering all these things, what a poor business will it be that those who hope to share these benefits yet cannot give something for the relief of a poor neighbor without grudging? What would have become of us if Christ had been so saving of his blood and loath to bestow it as many men are, their money or goods? Same thing. He's saying how we treat the poor reveals whether or not we really know this God, the God of the Bible, who himself became poor for us. See, justice is a sign that shows whether or not we remember. And back here in Amos 8, the people haven't remembered and said they've forgotten that they themselves were rescued by sheer grace back in Egypt. And so God says to them in verse 7, you may all have forgotten what I have done, but verse 7, oh, I will never forget anything they have done. This is super unnerving. God will never forget injustice. Well, what hope is there for anyone? Because if we're all honest, we're all guilty of this some way, somehow. What hope is there? And the answer is, there's all the hope in the world because of number four, because of what justice will bring. Just when you think there's no hope for the world or anyone, the prophet Amos closes his book with two things. These minor prophets did quite often. They spoke about two things. First, a future king, in a future kingdom. First, he spoke about the future king. Amos talks about him here in chapter nine, closing the book. He says, in that day, it's coming, I will restore, that God is saying, David's fallen shelter, repair its broken walls, restore its ruins, rebuild it. So God's saying that one day there'll be a king coming from the line of David who comes into the world and rescues his people and brings Mishpat with him. And of course, all the Jewish people loved hearing this. Because they had, were hoping for, they settled for, in their minds, what would be a conquering political hero. But they should have kept reading because God says this future king is going to be different. Because here's what he's going to bring. He says that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. God's saying this future king is going to bring all the nations of the world together. He's not coming just for Israel. And he even name checks Edom as being a part of it. Why? Well, Edom and Israel had this bad history, centuries-old blood feud based on ethnicity. The Jews were descendants of Jacob, Edomites, descendants of his brother Esau. They could never be reconciled, hated each other for centuries, but God said, uh-uh, my future king will reconcile people that no one else could. So first, there's a future king coming. He didn't come to bring peace through conquest, but through love. Not only though, is there a future king, Amos says, oh, There's a future kingdom. Look at how he poetically describes it. Days are coming, declares the Lord. The reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will come out of the mountains and the hills. And I love this because God's saying, think about it. He says, you you all, when you go, when you go, when when you're you're harvesting, you, you plant one month, right? You sow seed in another, you harvest in another, you tread the grapes in another month, and then later on, you get wine. He's asking here, How would you like to live in a world where you're always harvesting? 
It's a never-ending harvest. There's such an abundance of harvest that the season for harvest overtakes the season for plowing. And there's such an abundance oh, that you don't just have wine in the cellar, but it's like wine is flowing down from the mountains. Imagine a world where there's such an abundance of food and drink that everyone has more than what they could ever want. He says it'll happen where? On the mountains. The mountain of the Lord was a poetic symbol for the kind of future kingdom the king of kings would bring a healed, restored, loving, just material world. In other words, the king of kings has come to bring, hear me, not an escape from the material world to a galaxy far, far away, but one day, a healed, restored, loving, and just world. This world transformed. This world, yeah, made perfect. This world full of mishpat. Bedford Falls, not Potterville. How'd you like to live in that world? Yeah, Amos is saying that one day through the king of kings, it'll happen. And by the way, this is unique to the Christian faith. Vinath Ramachandra, Sri Lankan theologian, he sees other faiths up close and personal around the world. He says this, quote, Christian salvation lies not in an escape from this world, and by the way, you can see this when those of you who have given your hearts to Christ, when that happened, when you became a Christian, you started to follow Jesus. God didn't give you like the Holy Ghost, rat poison, right? Send you to heaven, sorry. No, he's transformed from the inside out, right? Our salvation lies not in an escape from this world, but a transformation of this world, which you see in seed form at your conversion. You will not find hope, he's saying, for this physical world in any other religious system or philosophy. The biblical vision is unique, and that is why if someone says, surely there's salvation in other faiths, I always ask them, what salvation are you talking about? Because no other faith holds out a promise of eternal salvation for the world like the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ do. So how can God forgive and forget all the lack of justice? It's because of the salvation that King Jesus began to bring on the cross. He came not to bring judgment on us, aren't you glad? But to bear judgment on himself. And what he began at the cross, he'll finish in full and his return. You say, how can I apply this today? Let me close by giving you one way. To be a Christian now means we live now in light of what the world will be one day. We don't just give up on the world. We don't just want to escape from the world. We live, hear me, and do mission in light of what the world will be like. Let me give you this one example. Do you know that centuries after Amos wrote this, after Jesus Christ lived died and was resurrected, that the first church in history looked at this exact passage and did exactly that. Peter, James, John, Andrew, others were talking about how to lead and love a diverse people group full of rich and poor, all ethnicities, figuring out what could help them serve the diverse community that were coming to faith in Christ. They were at something called the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. It would set the course of the church for the next 2,000 years. And at a crucial moment in history, they looked at and picked up, guess who? Amos's album, track nine. Because they knew and they saw what Amos saw was beginning to happen in their day. The future king had come and the nations were beginning to be gathered in and now there was hope for a future kingdom. Therefore, they poured themselves out in that day for people unlike themselves to show the world the kind of king they loved and served. And that king's name, of course, is Jesus.
Let me take a moment and pray for us and Pastor Barnabas will come up and close us. Lord, we come and in Jesus' name, and I'm, I'm praying today in the midst of a, a challenging world, I thank you that there is all the hope in the world. That we come to know you when we believe that you came and you lived and you died and you were resurrected in our place for us and as us. And in that moment, we begin to hook our hearts and lives onto a far bigger story. Something you're doing throughout the centuries, throughout the world, throughout history. I thank you for the hope of even a future kingdom. Lord, give us grace. We're doing this now in the Dominican Republic with our team, doing this across the parking lot right now, in this room throughout this week. Lord, help us to be people who love what you love and live like you've called us. We ask for the grace of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit to do this. Pray in your name, amen. Amen, praise God. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.